You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast made possible by our members. This week, we're going to devote the entire podcast to migration-related questions as we welcome the head of Sweden's migration agency to the studio to answer questions on a topic that directly affects the lives of many of our readers and listeners. Why are waiting times so long? Why can't work permit holders awaiting an extension risk leaving Sweden? How permanent is permanent residency? We'll talk about these questions and more over the course of the episode, and we'll put links in the show notes to related articles for anyone who wants to read up further. Just a quick note that in the interview you're about to hear, we talk about the government's plans to raise the salary thresholds to qualify for work permits. Just after we finished recording, the government announced that it was raising the threshold from 13,000 kroner to 26,560 kroner. And we'll put a link to our story about this in the show notes. I'm Paul O'Mahony and I'm joined today from Malma by Becky Waterton and Richard Orange and here in Stockholm we have James Savage and our guest Mikael Ribbenvik, the Director General of Migrationsverket, the Swedish Migration Agency. Welcome to the podcast and thank you for, for joining us. And before we get into all our questions, can you just tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your career at the Migration Agency? Well, uh, I I worked there for 24 years uh, and I started on the floor as a case officer and throughout the years I've done most of the things you can do in the agency, among other things. Uh, 2008, I became the director of legal affairs, which is the position where you take the more general, not decisions, but the legal positions on things that also affects a lot of people. And then from 2013, I was uh, director of operations during the crisis of 2015. So I was managing that. And then uh, since uh, 2016, I've been director general. And now I'm going to leave the agency by the last of this month. Yeah. So you're finishing up at the end of the month after, as you say, 24 years at the agency. And it's been widely reported that you were keen to continue. But the migration minister said that what the government calls its paradigm shift in migration policy necessitated a fresh pair of eyes. And after it was announced that you wouldn't be continuing, the far-right Sweden Democrat MP Björn Söder celebrated the decision and referred to you as an asylum activist. How did you react to that? Well, I think not only me, but everybody that knows me or knows of me, and that's quite a lot of people, think that is quite an absurd uh, accusation. Now, on the contrary, the criticism against the migration agency throughout the years has always been in Sweden that we're too harsh that we are 
square and we just think about the law, not about people, which is also true mm. because that is the the purpose and the task of an agency to follow the law. So to have that in the last minute was quite amusing, actually. Okay. And we usually start this podcast with a roundup of what's been happening in Sweden over the past week. And there have been a couple of recent stories surrounding Swedish migration policy. So let's talk about those briefly. First up, the Prime Minister Ulf Christensen visited the Danish agency responsible for ensuring that asylum seekers whose applications are rejected are returned to their countries of origin. And Christensen said he was impressed by what Denmark had done to cut immigration and lamented the fact that Sweden was 10 to 15 years behind its neighbour. But perhaps most controversially, he came out in favour of the Danish position that asylum seekers should be transferred to migrant reception centres outside the Union. From your perspective as head of Sweden's migration agency, what do you think of this idea? Well, I think nothing of that because that is purely policy level. And there are a few countries looking into this. Denmark is one. It's not operational. UK is another uh, country that has plans far along um, uh, on this. There are, of course, as the Danes are saying themselves, there are a lot of legal obstacles uh, that you have to look into. But if it's appropriate or not, purely a political question. Mm. But from an operational perspective, how easy would it be to implement? Very difficult, because first you need a host agreement, and then you need to see how that works with international and national law. But I'm no expert on it. I couldn't say because we have not looked into that. But in general, when it comes to Denmark, it is true that, I mean, when I started here, Sweden and Denmark had roughly the same numbers, roughly the same regulations. And then in the beginning of uh, the new millennia, uh, we parted ways and Mm. Denmark started to implement a lot of rules. And sometimes it's quite misreported that they're very tough on uh, asylum claims they're not that's the same thing it's everything around it that they changed uh, like uh, the possibility to have permanent permits or uh, family reunification and on and all these things so it's quite a, a package that they have developed uh, during the last 20 years we have always been in close contact with our uh, danish colleagues you know the the nordic council established in the 50s has a special committee on foreigners affairs and so the five nordic countries we meet I've always met uh, the director generals, have met uh, twice a year, mm. where we compare notes, uh, look at best practices. And so we're very close, our agency. Okay. And until recently, only the Sweden Democrats supported the idea of overseas migration centers for asylum seekers. How surprised are you at how quickly the pendulum has swung in a more restrictive direction in Swedish migration politics? I'm not surprised at all. I mean, we have seen this uh, Starting point is uh, November 2015, so uh, there has been a, a quite a shift uh, politically in, in Sweden around these things. And uh, I also, uh, this is not a political statement, this is just from experience, that if something gets uh, out of hand or if you if you can't control it, the response is often that the pendulum swings the other way and uh, that's exactly what happened in Sweden and that's why it's so so important from my perspective to have a well-managed migration because if it's perceived to get out of control or if it gets out of control there will be a massive backlash 
uh, and we've seen it uh, many times in different European countries. Mm. That leads us on to another recent story which concerns work permits. A lot of our listeners in Sweden, they're here on work permits and they're awaiting a decision from the government on what the new salary threshold will be to qualify for a work permit. And the Social Democrats last week called on the government to hurry up and hike the threshold in order to reduce the flow of low-skilled migrants coming to Sweden, even if you can't comment on the policy aspect of it. From the point of view of the agency, in practical terms, would hiking the threshold reduce your workload to an extent that would enable you to speed up the processing of high-skilled labour migrants' work permits? Uh, Yes, absolutely, but uh, not immediately, because uh, when you have new legislation, First of all, there's always complications with new legislation. You have to introduce it. Uh, I mean, it's not only to club it in Parliament, but then we need to imp- implement it. And many times that means changing like 5,000 forms, uh, ed- have education for staff and things like that. So that's always, but that's nothing new. Then, of course, we have trouble with abuse in quite a few of the sections of the labor market. And in these sections, we have extended controls. So we go deeper into those cases. And that is, of course, very... That takes up a lot of resources. So for us, eventually... Uh, because many of these sections of the labor market are in just those categories. In the low-paid sectors. Yeah, exactly. So uh, so we're, we're spending a lot of resources on, on managing that, so that would reduce workload. But then again, everybody that's in the system, they will still have to have a decision. But with a, a threshold, that would be more of a, an easy decision, depending on how it will look in the end. But, it, but if your application has been made and um, under the old system, will it be considered under the old system? Or if, the, if this, no. when the system changes, then, no. then, you, then, the, then the conditions well, change? You, you can. There's a legislation technique where you can have a transitional rules sometimes that could point to what you're saying but that i i don't foresee that so the general rule is uh, it's the conditions when we take the decision those are the conditions that we uh, will uh, follow this leads us on to waiting times in general now the length of time that people having to wait for their work permit applications to be considered and and other forms of, of migration applications as well but particularly for work permit applications, that's a major cons- consideration, a major problem for many of our readers. Uh, the parliamentary ombudsman said in December that waiting times were unacceptable. And how do you respond to that uh, criticism? Well, first of all, the narrative is quite wrong, I would say. For instance, now, uh, your question was on work permits, and I will answer that. But for instance, asylum, you, you read in the papers, like and head- headline says, nine years in Sweden and now suddenly you have to leave. That is always, without exception, false. That means, okay, the person has been here for nine years, but you got your decision nine nine years ago, and then there is an appeal, and then there's another appeal, then there's the statute of limitation, then there's a new application, then you absconded for a while, then you came back, and you know, there's 14 decisions in a case like that. So that is not handling time. No. No, that's something else. But work when, permits, but they, work are taking permits. Many, they are taking many months and years to, to get processed sometimes. No, no. I'm, I'm sure you can find that case. But the problem with the narrative is that you, you find a case and you describe the system from that case. So by regulation, we should have four months 
and our average time is four and a half. So we're we're late. Yeah? We should be under four months, and we're over. And that is, of course, average time. So there's a lot of cases that go much faster. And then there's a lot of cases that take longer time. The cases that go fast, it's uh, often the certified, or if you have a complete application, no problems. And in the certification process, we try to keep 10 days. We can't do that. I think we're over 30 days. But still, it's days, not months or years. And for pro uh, prolongation, it's a bit longer. Then you have cases on the other end, like I was talking about, where we, we really uh, look into cases deeper. And they're way over four months, many of them. You know, so average is difficult to describe with uh, the average. And then there are some cases that take a long time, but that's, then there's a reason for that. So the average is four and a half months. Uh, we should be four months and we're striving to that. And last year, for instance, we had 200 people working uh, with this uh, at the beginning of the year. At the end of the year, we were 300 people. So it's quite an increase. And that's done with uh, internal priorities because bottom line here and with all respect for the uh, justitia ombudsman he writes it also He's, he says he's, he will send this criticism the decision to government also because clearly he feels we're underfunded i mean i've been here 24 years and uh, i have not seen one year where any government has said well we'll give you what you want because it's really important that you keep the times so we're, we're prioritizing. We also had an, a huge increase last year in work permits. So the total was astounding. It was 104,000 cases. That's uh, new cases, uh, extensions, and uh, uh, people following. Uh, the, the, the accompanying spouses and family. Or exactly, yeah. yeah. So uh, 104,000 cases. So you know, it's not only sometimes we ca we're catching up, then something happens. In asylum, it could be Ukraine or something else. In work permits, it could be that the economy is speeding up like it did after the pandemic. Now it's going down. So, you know, it goes up and down. But I can assure you that we are doing two things because this is important to government and it's important to us. And the two things we're doing, we're allocating more resources and we are also now changing the system to be more effective. But I have to come back to that because that's not decided. I will decide on this soon. I mean, what a lot of readers say is that if you have a, if 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 they have a slightly more complicated case, or if if you require just a bit more documentation from them, then the whole process kind of slows down. Is is that is that a fair characterization of what happens? Yeah, that's true. So that's why it's so extremely important to have a correct application to start with, and that's not easy because in most countries, it's quite clear criteria. Either a, it's uh, these occupations we need. So if you're in those, fine, you can come. Or you have just a salary threshold. If you're above this, it's fine. You know, those are very easy cases to decide on. But we have the Swedish model here. So the two fundamental questions that we get, we can't answer before. Like, what should my salary be? Mm, we don't know. It's... Uh, depending on what collective um, agreement there is on that side of the labor market. Yeah, but these insurances, what insurance do I need? Well, we don't know. We have to see, uh, you know. 
So it's it's a system that uh, is very fluid. Sometimes we can't say the the most basic questions that people want to know mm. if they're going to Sweden to work. It's because we're using that Swedish model. It's not the government who decides. It's uh, the parties of the labor market who decides on what's a reasonable salary. Okay, so does this explain a little bit why a higher thrash- salary threshold will speed up processing if 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 you if, if everyone has if you've got a a, ba- a base salary th- threshold of say 30 33000 krona will that just mean that your decision becomes easier because you're not having to take account of the labor market well, model so much? a rejection is easier because if you don't reach the threshold say, ah you don't have to do anything more we say but that's too low i don't imagine you will have that kind of applications why would you have that <laughs> if it says you need to have whatever it be, I don't know what it will be, 33,000 or something. And say, yeah, but I have 29. We don't see, I don't think we will see many of those so applications. Those will just disappear from the system. Yeah. yeah, so they won't apply. Today, around 30% are under this threshold. And I don't know what the threshold will be, but if we count like median, it's been in the discussion to have the median pay, I think it's 33,000. So then it's, like 30% or a third of all is under that. But then there probably there will be exceptions to that rule also. That's also in the discussion. Uh, we have a lot of seasonal workers coming into Sweden, working in agriculture, forestry, uh, berry pickers and stuff like that. Mm. So, But we'll see. That's uh, up for political discussion. Yeah. A recurring problem that we saw particularly with talent deportations, but also with other issues, is that government decisions and sometimes court rulings don't always seem from the outside to quickly change the way that migration agency case officers make decisions. Can you explain why it's so difficult to change the way that applications are processed at the case handler level? And what can the government or what can a director general do about this? Well, I'm sorry to say, but everything in your question is pretty wrong because (laughs) that (laughs) that is also the narrative. So first of all, the, the talent deportation or kompetensutvisning, uh, that's, that's a great word if you want to push something. I am full of awe in that. <laughs> uh, the truth was that when we looked at the high-skilled or certified or the, these cases that were in the, uh, in the paper, we were always at between 98 and 99% approval for extensions. So, come on. I mean, if it, if it would, was any higher, it would be everybody, actually. And there are some people here, here and there. So, no, this was, uh, this was a campaign. It was uh, really good, and it still, it still exists. And it was totally wrong. It's not wrong that there is some person here or there who didn't meet the criteria, but it was 98, 99% approval. You could also question, why are we even trying these cases? Because everybody is getting extensions. It came into the January agreement. So this is the, this is, this is the agreement from the, um, uh, well, the previous government, government yeah. um, between the different and parties. And uh, uh, it, it's still around this. So the conclusion is that this lost percentage that are rejected, they shouldn't be rejected. So that is actually, then we shouldn't try the cases. <laughs> That's the conclusion. But I shouldn't be, because, I mean, there are cases, so on individual level. So let's talk about that then, uh, since everybody wants to talk about it. And, and the problem here was the reform was 2008. 
And it was the most liberal re reform in, in Europe, maybe the world, I don't know. And uh, so anybody who got had a job could come, you mm -hmm. know. But it shouldn't be exploitation. So you needed to have the same conditions as on the Swedish work market. And then there was a court ruling from this uh, Migration Appeals Court. They are the one decide. Nobody ever heard of them. Everybody talks to migration agency, but they are actually the ones deciding. They're setting jurisprudence. And they said, and this is not a quote, so just bear with me, but they basically said, since these are minimum requirements, if you go under them, whatever slightly under the minimum requirements, you can't get an extension. Okay, so we implemented that because we must, because that is the way the system works. And that led to these really silly cases like, but I, uh, there was something wrong here and it was a hundred kroner or, or this mm. was this and that, you know, and that blew up and that became the uh, comp uh, talent deportation. You can think whatever you want about that ruling, but that was what happened. And then it took a few years, and then, these are my words, the Migration Appeals Court, they did a self-correction. So after a few years, they said, yeah, okay, you shouldn't go under minimum, but you have to look ahead to see what are there reasons to think that this will continue? And this is the way it was before that first ruling. That was in 20, I don't remember, 15 or yeah. something like that. And then this second, this, this second judgment, they said you had to take, I think in, they said in Swedish, the hits bedumning. Is that, is that what you're talking about? They have yeah. to look at the whole picture. Yeah. But then there's another aspect. And here I, I will have to be very clear because part of this debate uh, also contained the word, uh, it's a bagatelle. I don't know the English word. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a minor it's a infraction. It's a tiny little... Yeah, it's in bagatelle is even more. It's like yeah. nothing, you know. It's trivial. Yeah. Yeah, trivia, a trivial mistake or mm. something like that. A bagatelle. I think it's French, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but some of these things are not a bagatelle. Because if you don't have insurance and if you get hurt, that is really not a bagatelle. First of all, that's not good for the individual. Second of all, who pays for the things then? Uh, that's the taxpayers. And that's not the system. So when you say, yeah, I had the wrong insurance or not uh, an insurance, that's not a bagatelle. Right. But, but, but I think what a lot, of, uh, a lot of work permit holders would say, first of all, is that, yes, but then you give employers a chance to correct the mistake. And why should the employee then be the person who pays the penalty for the employer making perhaps what might have been an innocent mistake that could that could then have been corrected you punish the you effectively in practice punish the employee because they were given what you were considered to be insufficient protection on the labor market it yeah. it, 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 it 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 seems to them unfair can you understand that oh of course and that's part of uh, that's part of this very strong narrative i think everybody can understand that so the consequence for the work permit holder is that if there's something wrong, you don't get uh, the extension. That is the consequence. And that could be a big thing. I mean, you moved country, you set up here, and then suddenly, oh, you can't stay. So there are some legislational changes that put more pressure on uh, the employer. Uh, and uh, But the problem is, I think, that when you put these things on the employer... 
I mean, most employers, they just want to do this right. They want to have this working and with, without problems. So they already think that, so that is of no use for them. The other employers who are really exploiting uh, the workforce, they don't care about that little fine because they, no. that's their business. Yeah. So, um, but still, I think you should have it and, and shift, shift focus like we have done. Yeah. But what we were seeing in some of these cases as well, and I'm, we'll move on in a sec, but what, 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 we, what we were seeing in some of these cases as well was the employers had bought an insurance, this insurance seemed to do what you wanted it to do, and then, you, then it was judged that it wasn't quite the right kind of insurance. Yeah. So they'd done everything, they, they, they'd, they'd, they'd acted in good faith, they'd done everything they thought they, they should have done, they'd, they'd yeah. checked all the rules. And yet still their employee got deported. Ah, yeah. There's also some cases where their insurance was approved on the first application, but when they go to get it renewed, it's decided that that insurance was actually not correct. And then that could be why their renewal isn't approved, for example. Yeah, well, that sounds totally silly, and I don't know why. Sometimes something has changed in the labour market, I guess, but I can't give a good answer. My answer won't be good. I think my answer will be quite philosophical. And Sweden... It's quite bureaucratic and we are also quite picky with following the law, even when it gets silly consequences. And we get a lot of criticism for that. The good thing about that is you have a well-organized society. The bad thing is that sometimes, a lot of times, people come to me, yeah, but it's silly, so can't you just change it? And I go, no, I'm sorry. We, <laughs> we're very loyal to legislation, even when the consequences are silly. And it's very difficult to to uh, explain that in the on, in the individual case, or it's impossible to explain it on the aggregate level. It, everybody agrees that should we follow the law? Yes, of course. <laughs> and then, but then when it comes to the individual cases, but but have some reason here, or have a heart, or <laughs> don't you understand? Or what if it was your kid? Or all these things. But all those things actually means. Can you please not follow the law? And we will never do that. It's, it's interesting seeing issues surrounding Brexit and people being deported because they haven't got the right, uh, or people being not being allowed to stay because they haven't got the right post-Brexit residency. And the UK media is all like, why can't you step in and, and reverse this decision? And Swedish media is like, what do you mean step in and reverse the decision? We can't do that in Sweden. We can't, we can't kind of go into individual no. cases there are a lot of uh, countries like that you go to to your dictator and he fixes it but there are also drawbacks in those societies and speaking of the brexit it's also a, a very i mean when you read the papers the story has its own life like now i read in the paper that like the other EU countries, they don't uh, return uh, UK citizens, uh, but Sweden has 1,300. Mm -hmm. What the hell is happening? Well, well, can we just can we talk about that? Because that's a question we want to ask. I mean, yes. I mean, these, 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 this isn't these are Eurostat figures. Nah. They, they, yes, they are the Eurostat figures, yeah. where they where where they where they where they've compiled a list of the number of Brits returned home after Brexit or returned returned back to the UK after Brexit by different European countries. And Sweden, which doesn't have that many Brits living here compared to countries like Spain or France, was responsible for more than 40% of all expulsion orders for Britons since Brexit. Now, I know a lot of people have looked at these figures and don't believe them, but can you explain them? Of course I can. So Eurostat is not equal the truth. 
<laughs> we think that it, it, you would it, like it to be equal to the truth. It's a European yeah, official statistics agency. You really agency. like that, but it's not. It depends on what you report, right? It just depends on what you report. Some countries they don't report. Yeah, that's the first thing. Sweden always reports very obediently. So I looked at these figures, and from these thirteen hundred or something, it's actually two hundred. That fits the description of what we're talking about. People living here that won't get a, a permit that has to return to the UK. The things that are the rest are like you come to the passport control in Arlanda, you don't have your your COVID thing, and the police says, "No, we won't let you in." I mean, it, we report everything, and it's not even only UK citizens. It's people arriving from the UK, so you could have. A person from maybe wherever you know, China or Bangladesh or Somalia, residing in the UK, coming to the Swedish border, he didn't have his proper COVID thing, and the police says, "Then we won't let you in," and that's a mark in the statistic. So it all depends on what you report. But there are cases, of course, and we have uh, we have said this also. So Eurostat, they will do this over, uh, as I understand, to see what is the real picture. Then, of course, you have the other thing that there are some of our our dear friends in the EU that they don't care much about implementing their own rules always, and we always do. So there's that aspect also. There are, nonetheless, some people who have been told to leave Sweden despite having lived here before Brexit for many, many years and having worked, and as far as we in the media can detect, having have lived here. Legally, how is it possible, given that the Brexit agreement was intended to ensure that everybody who was living legally in an EU country was able to stay on the same basis as before? How is it possible that that deportations nonetheless happen, or deportation orders nonetheless are issued?、Uh, some people just didn't care to take the measures that they had to do.、Uh, there's quite a number of examples. I don't want to go into the individual cases, but I'm sure you have read about them in the in the papers. So first of all, I mean, UK and Sweden were like best pals in the EU. I worked a lot in the EU. I know this. We're like you call it like-minded. You, you,、uh, we always work together like best buddies. You know, the, 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 there's quite a lot of Anglophiles out here in in Sweden,、uh, <laughs> like British football more than Swedish and so on. <laughs> no, no. So we when we worked with the、uh, with the British embassy here very closely to reach out to all. I don't remember what it was. Thirty thousand. Uh, Brits uh, here, so we worked very hard to say there. There's a window, and these are the things you need to do. It's not like the same. You will be third country、uh, citizens. You need to get permits, and we try to reach every corner, everywhere, to have this done. And almost everybody made it. Yeah,、uh, but as I said, there, we have about two hundred cases where you didn't get. And and th- those are very different cases. You can't say, but, but why?、Mm. There's very different. Some some of them didn't care to do things. So they just didn't. They didn't go through the paperwork, and therefore, having not gone through the paperwork, yeah, you've missed your chance. Yeah, yeah. And that's like I think some people underestimated this.、Mm. Yeah, but mostly most people didn't. So we really tried, and we had an excellent cooperation with the embassy. 
really trying to get everybody in and explaining that this is important. Could I make one follow-up question, which is, yes, the embassy was very active and we went to a lot of events that were held and we also worked with the embassy to get the message out to British people in Sweden. But if you look at Denmark, for example, there's a big controversy over the few people who didn't receive a letter from the Danish authorities telling them to apply for post-Brexit residency. But in Sweden, the decision was made not even to send out a letter. So yes, the authorities are very active in the media and through the embassy channels but there wasn't you know mail outs or i don't even emails or text messages sent out to brits why didn't that happen i don't i don't know i i have no idea do you think it would have made a difference if it had 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 been done no i mean brexit was well known among brits i'm very sure I'm very sure it was known. I think there's this this confusion over permanent uppehållstillstånd, permanent uppehållsrätt, permanent uppehållsstatus. A lot of people who thought, oh, well, it says permanent, which means I don't need to do anything. I've heard that a lot from our readers that have had problems with this. That They they thought that their, their residency was permanent, so they didn't have to apply for a new permanent residency. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, everything changed with uh, Brexit, right? So I, I think it's just a massive case of underestimation from some people who just assumes I don't have to do anything. But if you look at how Swedish society runs, this is nothing usual. I mean, everything you have to do, you have to do it yourself. That's not that's normal. The, the agencies won't send a letter to you. Hello, you need to do this and this and that. So maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we're too uh, traditional. But that's normal uh, how it how it works. If you want something, you contact the agencies. We decide on it. So yeah, uh, maybe it would be good to send a letter. Um, uh, uh, maybe uh, we should have done that. But then it's it's more a question who who's responsible for things. I mean, I don't want to sound like a real uh, total evil person here. But but I don't know. But if I lived in another country and something changed, I I'd check it. I check it, you know. Mm. I go on a page, like, is this pertaining to me? I mean, the information is one click away. It's not a secret. Mm. So if you go, well, I thought there was no problem and nobody told me, you're a bit oblivious, I think. <laughs> but wasn't, was, was there perhaps a, a mistake made at the political level, you know, the European political level, where you had both British and European negotiators saying... Our main priority is to ensure that all people who are living in, all British people living in the EU and that all European people living in the UK will be allowed to stay. And people heard this and they thought, well, they've sorted that for us. It could be, could be. But again, I mean, these are people that lived in Sweden for a long time. They, uh, in general, I mean, there's all kinds of people, but like they contribute to society. There's no... Not much problems with the Brits in Sweden, right? So it's we really wanted everybody to stay, you know. So that, let's not confuse this like no. with the ah, uh, you want to get rid of some. No, <laughs> no, we wanted everybody to stay, and and we tried. There were information on this. This I know. I'm, I mean, it, there was a lot of information available. So it's very sad. But then again, I mean. Uh, life isn't over you you can apply as a third country citizen mm. right right so then you have to have the hassle of that that's that's the consequence mm. right one problem that a lot of our readers are having is that um, they won't be allowed back into Sweden if they leave the country while their application for a work permit extension is being processed or they risk being turned away when they try and re-enter the country 
one example is that readers have told us they've missed funerals and weddings because they they feel trapped in Sweden, they can't leave. And then um, I spoke to the migration minister, Maria Malmstenagod, recently, and she mentioned that she would look into introducing exit visas that would allow people to leave the country while their work permit extension applications are being processed. Have you heard anything from the government on this? Um, is this anything that you've you've kind of heard about? Yeah, and I, I welcome that because that creates a lot of problems for people. And there will always be, even if we manage to get the waiting times down, there will always be that gap from when your permit uh, expires to that you get a, a, a new permit. There will always be that, no matter how successful we are with new processes and, and allocating of resources and stuff. So you will always have that, and because you can't get a permit when you have a permit, so you can only get it after it's expired, right? So I think that's an excellent idea because everything else is moving on uh, as normal, you know. Uh, so I think that would be a great idea uh, to uh, to introduce that. That would, uh, for us, it would be much easier because imagine people contacting us saying, "I have to." I'm happy about your question because often it's formulated that nobody can leave. They're trapped in Sweden. You can leave, obviously. You're not prisoner, but it's the re-entry. That you, yeah, and if you have a job in Sweden, then then that, that's 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 rather difficult. But you are allowed to leave. But you you're can not go allowed to, the to wedding, come back in. But you're not allowed to come back in. Are you aware of legislation being drafted on this? That things are happening in the, in the ministry. I don't uh, I don't know there's so much going on on the legislative front mm. so I don't know if there's a draft on this I I know I heard the minister saying it so I think it's more uh, how it works is you you make an inquiry I think it's the best word utredning statlig utredning so either if you have something ongoing you can put it in there or you have to start a new inquiry and the legislative process is, is still a, a year and a half, mm -hmm. at least, maybe two, depending on the questions. So, yeah, so I think that will happen. I hope it will happen. Um, staying on the kind of on the migration minister, uh, she also told us that she was tasking the migration agency with promoting highly qualified labour migration and um, that the agency, as a result, was planning on setting up a completely separate unit for handling work permit applications. Has this happened? And if it hasn't happened... Do you, can you give us an overview of maybe the plans and how they might make a difference to applications? Uh, yeah, I, I even asked to be tasked about this because uh, for many years we've had two systems, one law. The expect expectations are very high on certain sec sectors of the labor market and lower in others. Uh, but there's one system, so we don't have the high skill, low skill. So I asked government to say, but, but if this is what you want, be clear and task us with... Uh, promoting that segment and they did i'm very happy about that so we've been working uh, with that uh, this spring and i think uh, we will announce the new system in the coming weeks but uh, i have not decided on it yet so i, I can't uh, it's too it's too soon but uh, very soon we will uh, announce the new system so you think it will be announced before you have to step down at the end of the month? Ah, for sure, because that's one of the things I wanted to do, right? <laughs> so that's for sure I will. So that's my baby. You Not know, letting so anyone else get, the, get sure. all the credit for it. No, nobody else will get credit for that. <laughs> <right now. laughs> 
That's all for this week's podcast, and we'll have more from the interview with Mikhail Ribbenvik in a bonus episode. Please share the podcast with anyone you think might be interested or email it or put it on your social media. And if you can rate the podcast or leave a review, it would be very much appreciated. Our guest this week was Mikael Rubenvik, the outgoing Director General of the Swedish Migration Agency. Our panellists were Becky Waterton, Richard Orange and James Savage. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again next week with another regular episode of Sweden in Focus. Until then, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.